if you're listening to this and you're just thinking about it and you're like super curious, like go be curious and go try, right. And go do a short race. Like don't, it's so it's easy to be super overwhelmed by a long race. Welcome to the dark zone an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatens. In adventure racing lingo, a dark zone is a time when due to darkness or safety, teams are paused on the course before continuing with the race. During that time, stories are exchanged, friendships are kindled, spirits are restored, and teams have a chance to prepare for the next challenge. We hope that you make good use of this dark zone, and we are glad that you are here. Today's guest is Sarah Goldman, adventure racer, outward bound team member and instructor, longtime outdoor aficionado and all around great person. Sarah brings her coach perspective, mindset, and how she views challenges as an opportunity to change to today's episode. We also go deep on the other podcasts, people, short films, and media that serves as inspiration for all of us. Thank you to Sarah for joining us for this episode. As many of you may be aware, Boulder, Colorado recently had a fast-moving fire destroy hundreds of homes. One of those homes belonged to Katie Farrington, race director, adventure racer, and another all-around great person. As they are community often does, it is rallied around Katie, and if you want to support her and her family, please visit GoFundMe and search for Farrington Family Fire Fund. Farrington is spelled F-E-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. Do it for the good karma alone, as we all need that open mini-mart at 3 a.m. during a race. Thank you to Tansy Navigation for coming on board as a sponsor of The Dark Zone. You can learn all about them at www.tansynavigation.org. That's T-A-N-Z, navigation.org. Listeners of The Dark Zone can enter and win a free copy of Mark Latanzi's book, Squiggly Lines, by emailing me at brian at ardarkzone.com. Thank you to Tansy, and welcome aboard. And again, thank you, the listener, for joining The Dark Zone. Today's world doesn't lack for ways to grab your time and attention. We're grateful to have you as a listener. Thank you again to Sarah for joining us, and enjoy the show. Welcome to The Dark Zone. Adventure Racing Podcast. We're joined today by Sarah Goldman. Sarah Goldman is an adventure racer, works with Outward Bound, has worked in the outdoor industry for quite a while. Um, she joins us today to talk a bit about her life experience, her adventure racing experience, uh, what she's learned over the years that she has been racing, and what she's learned after her racing has slowed down a little bit. So Sarah, welcome to the Dark Zone. Glad you're here today. Um, talk to us a bit about yourself. What's your, what's your origin story? Where do you come from as an adventure racer as an outdoor person? Yeah. Hey, thanks, Brian. I appreciate being here. Um, it's really good to, to see you and to talk to you. It's been a while, so it's nice to nice to check in. Whew, my origin story. I mean, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I, I guess it's not that tough, actually. My parents definitely instilled a love of the outdoors in me uh, very, very early. My very earliest memories are from like a cross-country road trip that my family did uh, when I was like four years old. Um, and the first time I strapped a backpack on for a uh, like multi-day backpacking trip, I was nine years old. Uh, slept in a tent in the woods by myself when I was you know, nine years old. And from then on, it's always been a part of my world. It's always been a part of my life. Um, and whether or not there's been, you know, like all things, ebbs and flows of that, where I've been fully working in outdoor education, which I did, you know, through college, right after college, then, you know, spent a decade and a half in public safety, where I was venturing on my off days and doing quite a fair bit of climbing through all that time, um, you know, and then had always sort of had that eyeball, you know, on adventure racing and was really excited to get into that through, you know, like 2015 through, you know, sort of the start of the pandemic. So um, the wilderness of being outside, being comfortable, uh, being uncomfortable, sort of been always a part of my world. Uh, and I am really grateful uh, that that's kind of been my story because it served me really well so far. 
So the clearly as somebody who who began their life at a very young age, the, the outdoors didn't seem to be that far away from your world, right? A nine-year-old cross-country trip, being in a tent on your own. What was it that brought you over to adventure racing, right? Because there's there's the cohort of people who enjoy the outdoors, right? They put a backpack on and they go for a hike and they they find a big mountain to walk up and over and they find a river to raft down. And then there's that subset of the population that gets into adventure racing. And for those who are new to the podcast, adventure racing, as, as many of us do know, is a multidisciplinary sport in which competitors, they bike and they trek and they hike and they, they paddle and they find checkpoints in the woods using a map and compass. What was it about the adventure racing that got you into the sport? Yeah, so I hate to be, you know, as trite as so many of us of a certain generation are, but growing up watching the Eco Challenge, you know, in the 90s and looking at those, those folks and just thinking, I want to do that. You know, that challenge, it's so spectacular. The um, level of athleticism, the, you know, variety of, um, you know, different technical skill abilities that were needed. You know, so I had that sort of, you know, as a teenager, early 20s was like, wow, I really want to do that, right? I want to climb big mountains. I want to scale big faces. I want to ride my bike everywhere. I want to do all of the things. Um, And then, you know, I never really, you know, got into that. But my life in my outdoor recreation, you know, continued where I was becoming a mountain biker and I was, you know, racing bikes and I was climbing mountains and I was paddling and I was doing all the things. And then, you know, there was a time, when I was starting to look at my, um, you know, like, what are the things, what's my bucket list, right? I was actually looking at that bucket list. And funny enough, when I was looking at my bucket list, I had an iron, like compete in an Ironman is what I had on there. And it's just so funny because I don't have any interest really in doing that now. But as I looked at that, I was like, okay, well, first thing I need to do, I need to start running. I need to start, you know, being, you know, and I started like thinking in my mind, I was training for an Ironman. But then, and I wish I could remember the exact moment where I saw an actually accessible adventure race. And I thought, oh no, that's what I want to do. And sort of made that switch and never went back to triathlon. I mean, I've done some tries since then, but I've never went back to that like Ironman dream. It went to the like, oh, multi-day expedition style racing. That is the bucket list. That is the big dream that I want to do. Fortunately for me, I'd spent a lifetime preparing for that, right? Because I do think that one of the biggest, you know, hallmarks of folks who are able to successfully endure and compete in a multi-day expedition race are folks who have general outdoor skills, right? Like folks who are comfortable in the wilderness for extended periods of time, forget about the competition aspect, forget about the navigation aspect, forget about the sleep deprivation. If you're, you know, someone who hasn't yet become comfortable spending a bunch of days in the woods, uh, regardless of what you're doing, you know, that big leap is, is a big one. So for me, I just feel really fortunate that by the time I actually had the ability to get into adventure racing, I was set up really well for success for that. It's funny you bring that up because there's, I remember a moment when I did my first multi-day race, it was on Tame New England and you and I actually, we saw each other many times during that race. <laughs> yeah. We saw you when you were coming in from a checkpoint and we were going out to one, but we saw you and your team and you did so well there. And I remember that being my first multi-day race and like the evening of the second day, when you had raced an entire day for 24 hours through one night, you raced through the the afternoon, the morning and the afternoon of the next day. And all of a sudden you're going at that next night and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm still awake. And the idea that like, I'm not going to be in a bed for like two, three more days. And I think the point that you're making there is that for people who are getting into multi-day adventure racing, and I'm curious if you raced less than multi-day racing, and we'll talk about that in a second. For the idea of multi-day racing, where it blows a lot of people's minds is that the race starts at say nine o'clock on a Monday morning. And theoretically speaking, the next time that they're going to be in a bed, 
and a shower, mind you. Indoors. <laughs> and indoors could in theory be four days later. And four, seven, seven, yeah. ten days in some places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that 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 conceptual mind shift that wow, like there is no bed tonight, there is no bed tomorrow, and we're gonna figure as we go along. There might be a bivy by the side of a trail. There's a famous picture of you laying face down on top of a rock pile in Ontario, New England. You just went to sleep with your trekking poles in your hands. There's, there's a couple of those out there. Yeah. A there's couple a lot of, of those. them next to my bike a lot of times. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Lay down the bike, lay down on the trail. And so I think you're spot on when you talk about how having a general familiarity with the outdoors is, is a good prep for the multi-day racing. Right. But absolutely. But alongside that, there's other things that, that people could probably pick up on who it's tough to say to a newer racer, you want to do a month a day racing, go sleep outside for three days. Right. Was your yeah, but first- you could say go backpacking. Right. Okay. I mean, like go do a single sport, right? Like don't go out there and think, Oh, I've got to go do this major brick workout and I've got to go string together a bunch of different activities. Get your friends together, borrow some backpacking gear and go for a backpacking trip, get comfortable, you know, peeing in the woods, get comfortable eating on the go, get comfortable eating food. That's not normally what you would eat. Get comfortable being super dirty and in the same clothes for a few days at a time. I mean, when folks, especially people who are new to the sport or, or want to make that jump from like a six or a 12 hour to the multi-day stuff, it really is that like ability to keep yourself comfortable and to keep yourself warm and like be able to tend to yourself over that time. And, and you can start that in a very accessible way by just going for a backpacking trip. Right. Yeah, you're spot on because you do you do build over time the callousness of those separate things, like the idea that you may may be in the same clothes for 36, 48 hours. The fact that you you might be sleeping kind of rough outside, um, brushing your teeth even over the over, you know, during the course of the race. And so you're spot on that. And this is nice for those who are new to the sport who are listening. Yeah, this is not much about the idea of specific training. Well, training is important. We'll get to that. Right. How do you prepare yourself physically? But what you're saying is, is that getting yourself in the atmosphere, getting yourself in the orbit of what you'll be asked to do is the best thing you could do for yourself if you're an aspiring multi-day adventure racer. Yeah, I think absolutely. I I can't imagine how much more difficult it would have been for me in my first multi-day races if I had not spent extended time in the backcountry in the past. Just the general, there's enough that makes you uncomfortable expedition racing, that if you're uncomfortable just being somewhere in the middle of nowhere where you haven't seen a road and you've been peeing on the side of the road and you know how to dig a hole to go poop like if you are doing those for the first things in the middle of a race like that feels that would have been so much more difficult for me it's not doesn't mean that's not uh possible but i would say go ahead and, and get that comfort get that experience where the being just being outside and being in very remote locations which i think is another thing that is um something that could certainly get under folks skin when you're doing expedition racing um, or not even just expedition racing but you know if you're someone who's new to the sport being really comfortable in very remote locations and having the confidence to know that you can get yourself back to somewhere that's less remote or back to safety or to a checkpoint whatever that is like that's a big big confidence piece, right? So yeah, it's all of those, those aspects. So you bring the idea of getting yourself back to safety. So a, a common phrase for those who are, or learning about sport is in the navigation, right? Cause the adventure racing is a navigation based sport, map and compass, no electronics, things like that. There's a safety bearing where the race director will say to you, if you're really, really, really lost head in this direction. And eventually you will be found. You'll find a road, you'll find a town. I remember once again, harking back to Untamed New England, that Grant Killian in his pre-race briefing said, go south and in two days, you'll come across a road. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
that first, the first orienteering piece, that first nav section on foot was something else with the uh, like two foot apart spacing on the lodge poles and being up there for hours and hours. That was, that was intense. And yes, that would have been a head south for quite a while. <laughs> that, and, and that was the same race where we got the maps and, in, 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 when the maps were distributed and the first checkpoint was basically a checkpoint, a, a flag in the middle of a green blob, not a trail, not a route, just a, do your best to get to the right mountain to get on top to find it. Yeah, absolutely. And you got to be comfortable in that. You got to be comfortable with that really unknown known feeling. But, you know, it's not just the eating. It's not just the, you know, being comfortable with sleeping. But it's simple things that we don't necessarily think about that if you haven't done them before, it's a big deal. Filtering water, right? Knowing what a good water source looks like. Um, you know, foot maintenance and foot care, like just if you're out on your feet period. Right. Um, so it's really all of, I really do come back to this idea of like, it's really just a backcountry trip you're doing. This is what we always say about racing, right? It's, um, it's just like a workout. You're just doing as fast as you can. Right. And so it's like, this is, you know, a race is really just a backcountry experience with a bunch of different disciplines all strung together and doing it as fast as you can. Gotcha. And navigating <laughs> from place to place to place along the way. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you're, and yeah. you're, you know, you mentioned that you have foot care there and, and I, I, as both a victim and a volunteer to adventure racing, I have seen it is, it is your feet that very often does you in that if you don't take good care of your feet with foot lube and a good pair of socks and a good pair of shoes, no matter how strong you are, it's lights out. Yeah. It's always, it's all, it's always something, right? Like whether it's your feet or whether it's other parts of your body that really start to, you know, not cooperate, but yeah, definitely having a foot plan and understanding how your feet, uh, what your feet need is super important. And that comes with time. And I think that's just one of those things while there's hints, hints and tips and tricks like there's so much experimenting that has to get done in order to really figure out like oh it's this shoe sock combination this is what i want for this trekking section right or it's this shoe sock combination that i want for day five's trekking section right um and this is what needs to be taped and i know i need to tape the night before so that it sets so that i'm good to go the next day i know that i've got to get powder on my feet during you know whenever i can you know whatever it is and that's stuff that like you really need to be experimenting with while you're training and even if it's a short training session practicing that and seeing hey does this actually work and you know intentionally getting your feet wet and staying wet wet feet for your entire training sessions so you can see what that feels like so a word that we use sometimes in these conversations and it's not the the, the most accurate word to use but it it sets the 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 tone for the conversation idea of failing while training right and, sure. and what i mean by that is is that for the for the aspiring adventure racer for the aspiring outdoor person everybody has unique response to different things the you mentioned the the shoe sock foot mm -hmm. lube combination things like that it's very important for the for the person who's on the newer side to fail forward right the idea that like okay i went for a three-hour hike today and that was not a good combination that was a mistake and i have a blister here and a blister there mm -hmm. do you find that people tend to abandon these pursuits too early that they have a rough experience with their feet or their shoulders or the pack is too heavy or they're they're chafed here and if they just hung in there a bit longer, they would have had a much better experience. But they are, they're kind of in this mindset where if I don't get it right the first time, it's not worth redoing. Yeah, I mean, I think this comes back to like this acceptance piece, right, where it's the acceptance that you're not actually supposed to be comfortable. Like um, your feet are not going to feel good. There are ways for them to feel better, <laughs> but nobody finishes a long race and is like, oh, my feet feel amazing. I can't wait to put heels on tomorrow. You know, um, so I think when we say abandoning too early, I mean, you know, in my work with Outbound and my work with racing or just in racing, uh, you know, at Outbound, it's really hard to leave an Outbound course. Right. And the longer and bigger races you do, 
the harder it is to leave a race <laughs> too, right? In the sense that, yeah, you can quit and it's going to take you just as long to quit as it is to continue racing, um, just based on the nature of the races. But I think often, yeah, folks, you know, it's this, you know, how do you build the capacity to tolerate discomfort, right? And our bodies, everything about us in our psyche is natural for us to move away from things that make us uncomfortable. That is normal. Um and we're going to have to fight that tendency to do that, right? Like we want to, we want to do that. It's a survival mechanism. So how we like intentionally force ourselves to tolerate that discomfort and understand that like that becomes a muscle that can stretch over time too, right? Like um, that is uh, things that I think make people abandon these pursuits too quickly, right? Is that like avoidance of discomfort and the and the lack of acceptance that what comes with the experience is being uncomfortable. And, and your your point is is spot on there. That and so what you're saying is is that in 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 all of us there's a almost a primal evolutionary response to walk away from discomfort. Hundred percent. And as a result, we tend to get uncomfortable and say, "This hurts. I don't want to do this." And and we we abandon whatever it would be, right? And the, the couch is comfortable, and the TV is comfortable, and the house is warm, and the theater sure. dry. What do you think it is about adventure racers, about people who find this attractive, that they they decide to push through that? What what button are they tapping in their own brain that makes them that puts themselves into these situations such as this. What do you think it is in your experience? Cumulative experience, I think, uh, in the sense that, you know, nobody starts their adventure racing career with a five-day race, right? Or I wouldn't advise it. (laughs) It would would Uh, certainly make for good stories for future episodes of The Dark Zone. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Um, You know, but I think it's that idea that you continue to push the envelope, right? Like you continue to like, okay, I'm experiencing discomfort. I'm okay. I'm doing that. It ends. Okay, I did that for six hours. Now I can do it for, now I'm going to try and do it for 12 hours. You know, what? what makes a particular person choose that and choose to, like I say, voluntarily pursue stuff that's hard, right? Like actually choose challenge. I think our folks that have understood and learned from previous challenge, I think it's really important also to clarify when we talk about this, that we are folks who can voluntarily pursue challenge and voluntarily make themselves uncomfortable are so overwhelmingly fortunate that the hardship of our life doesn't prevent that in the sense that a lot of folks every day, their life is like an adventure race, right? It's the hardest thing they've ever done in their life day after day in, day out. Right. So I think one of the biggest things that we have to recognize are the folks that are in the position to voluntarily pursue difficult things in order to grow as a person are coming from a gigantic place of privilege to be able to do that. We could put ourselves into a challenge there where in some people's lives, to your point, every day is the adventure race. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, so I think that's important to remember. And I, you know, people like to talk about suffering, right. And I'm going to go out and it's a suffer fest and I'm going to suffer. And I just, I try to stay personally, try to steer away from that language in the sense that suffering is involuntary for the most part. Right. And what we're doing is voluntary. So yeah, I could say, I'm going to choose to go do something hard. I'm going to choose to be uncomfortable. I'm going to choose to struggle, you know, but to say that, like, I'm choosing to suffer, I think it does a disservice to folks who are suffering on a, on a, on the daily. Right. So, so we're fortunate. We come from a place of privilege. That's great. We obviously adventure racers, you know, it's funny. We think about or talk about adventure racing as being like the fringe of the niche, right? So like not only like being competitive athletes, uh, being competitive multi-sport athletes, then being competitive outdoor, uh, you know, enthusiasts, expedition style. It's like, it is like the very, a very small microcosm of people. Right. So if you've sort of gotten through all of those other pursuits and, and led yourself to there, um, you know, we are, we are a small group and a unique group of people, you know, can we say what makes us all the same? Obviously the willingness to be uncomfortable, 
right? Because we all know, and, and if you have stick around racing for more than one race, you know that you're going back to a position where you're going to be uncomfortable and you've understood and been able to leverage the benefits of what you've gained from that. You know, and I know personally, like I pursue it because that's just a culture. Like that is just a way of life for me. Right. And I think pursuing things that are hard, putting yourselves in challenge, being around like-minded folks who want to do that. Um, and be able to, I mean, obviously the best parts about being able to see amazing places and have incredible experiences. I mean, that's, you know, on top of all of that. Right. Um, but it's a, it is a lifestyle. I do think for a lot of folks and it's complementary to a lifestyle perhaps. If someone was preparing for a, a, a race, whether it be six hours, six, eight, 12, 24, 30, whatever it might be, and they wanted advice on how to be a good teammate, and you're known to be a very mm. good teammate, <laughs> if, what would your advice be to a newer racer who wants to focus on being good to their team? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, be squared away, right? Like there's a the technical piece of that, right? Where have your systems dialed, understand you know, what you need for yourself. Uh, to be, to be ready to go, right? Like you, you don't ever want to be the person who's getting, being waited on, you know, over and over again, because you just can't get yourself organized. So be organized, have your systems dialed, like yourself should be squared away. Um, But you know, what I've always have said, and and I say to instructional staff that I'm working with at our bound is that you've got to be an advocate for yourself. Right. And I think that that is something that over years of racing, I really learned makes you a good teammate is not, um, waiting until you really need help, but advocating ahead of time, like, look, I need to sleep now. I need to eat now. This is what I need. And while that sounds like selfish or very self-focused, it actually is better for the team if you can muster the courage to say, hey, I need a toe or, hey, I need to stop for five minutes or whatever it is, right? So that that idea of self-advocacy is is tough. I think it's tough for all adults. It's tough for competitive adults. Um, But I do think that that contributes to being a really good teammate. I think one of the things I brought to teams you know, as my career progressed, right. It's just some of that work around the mentality and the headspace. I saw that come alive in, in your experience was, and you probably don't remember this moment, but we were at pancake paradise and, and pancake paradise at the race that we did together sure. was this mid race stop where they were literally making pancakes for us at the base of a ski resort before this orienteering section. And you were, your team was sitting across from us. Um, and you turned to your teammates and you said, all right, listen, folks, listen, guys, I haven't had my freak out yet but it's going to show up eventually. And it was like day two and a half of the race. And you may not even remember that moment. But, it totally but, sounds but, like something I would say. So I a hundred percent believe you. And, and so, so talk a bit about your freak out and why you felt it was important to give your teammates that, like, what did you want? Why did you share that with them? Obviously you wanted to give them forewarning, right? That, sure. that, but it's, it's it, hurricane Sarah is going to land on shore. So get ready. But, well, yeah, it's hilarious. You know, freakouts are funny because sometimes it's not, it's not like a, a hurricane or a tornado. Sometimes it's just like a complete shutdown. Right. And then shut down, disappear, get away from me. I don't want to talk to anybody for five minutes. You know, one of my very first, um, or my very first expedition race was one of the cowboy toughs really early on. Uh, and I was racing in a, in a duo and I would not suggest for anyone to do their first expedition race with another inexperienced multi-day racer. <laughs> we, we had a lot of learning on that. Uh, and it was Glenn Gibson, my, you know, I raced with a numerous times, including, um, at that untamed. And so he knew, he always knows what I mean when I say my freak out's coming, but it's very funny during our first cowboy tough, we had this, you know, uh, situation at the very end of the race, we'd been lost for like 12 hours. And that was one of our like learnings too, was 
I think this is just what happens. You just get lost for that long. When you're out for that long of a race, you can be lost for that long. Um, and so we've been lost for a really long time. We had this whole opportunity to decide where we were, what we were going to do. And I was like, I'm just going to go over here and have a cry. And I'm just going to like, I just needed some space. And I literally moved like three inches away from him right? <laughs> <laughs> on the ground. And I just was like, I'm going over here. And I, at that point, day three, I can't really move. Right. And so I just literally shifted my body weight. I think it's what happened. Um, but you know, it's just that minute. And I think it's being able to say, and, and it's, like owning it. I think that's what it is, right? When I say, hey, I'm going to have my freak out, it's because I'm owning that. I'm not trying to stop it from coming because that doesn't help you, right? Like trying to spend effort and emotional energy to like, when you're trying to fight back tears, I think a lot of times it's easier to just be like, I need to cry and start crying, right? There's so much more like emotional energy. That's just as an example. So much more emotional energy trying to like stop that when it's like, it would just be easier to go ahead and cry. You know, yeah, I, I always like keep to say, pedaling, keep walking, but go right. ahead. But exactly. Cry. Get it out. Just so, yeah. if you keep moving forward, right? At no point own do you stop. Your, own your stuff, right? I mean, that's kind of the deal, right? Is just own your own your stuff, right? I mean, it's, it's the reality. And I think um, expectation management going in ahead of time to a, a team too. You know, a lot of times this comes, comes back to these like hour bound working relationships because those are small teams that are together in the woods for a very long time you know talking about these things that are stressors talking about your deal breakers having those kind of things up front so that no one can accuse you on day three night three of you being like look i told you i have to sleep at hour 70 or we're done right like having those expectations all set ahead of time i think is huge and I learned that myself as a, as a teammate, what I didn't do going into some of the bigger races and it wasn't fair to my teammate was our levels of preparation were different. For me, I knew we were outclassed. I knew that we were way out of our depth and I thought I'll prepare as best I can, but it's going to be wild from the very beginning. And I could have been more serious. And then we were in the race, we were in a transition area and I completely buffaloed my food and what was going to be where, and I didn't read the logistical sheet. And mm -hmm. once again, and I feel like I repeat myself for those who are new to the sport, very often we're given a schematic and, and that schematic consists of um, a multi-day breakdown of what section happens when and where our gear is there and where our food is there and things like that. And I had completely misread the schematic sheet and we were at a transition area and my teammate, Jimmy says to me, he goes, where's your, where's your food? And I'm mm. like, well, won't we see this box again? Cause there's boxes and there's bins and there's paddle bags. And it's like doing like this calculus oh, problem. The logistics. Yeah. And, but here's, here's where being a good teammate and, and Jimmy and I are friends for 30 years that when I said, I forgot my food, he says, I figured this was going to happen. And he handed me a bag of his food. He knew oh, funny. He knew. I was going to do that. And I will tell you, and once again, I like to say that, you know, advent, you know the dark zone very often are, are, are post-race therapy sessions. I learned very, very quickly that the next time we race together, that I had to be a better teammate. And that added to my ability to, to do this in races. Um, the idea of, 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 as you go into the racing and as you grow, you talk about the idea of, of being a better teammate, the idea of growing. Talk a bit about like nutrition. What do you eat during the race? How do you take care of yourself for a multi-day race? And what do you put in your body? Scientifically uh, created foods that are designed for you to crave them. Because I think mo a lot of folks will say that your appetite goes away uh, under sort of extreme duress and endurance events. And so eating things that are not naturally occurring <laughs> in the world, like Fritos and Hostess cupcakes and Twinkies and 
Tex Mix and all kinds of different things. You know, people ask me about my food all the time. Um, and I, I hate to answer it like that because that sounds so terrible, right? But I think a lot of times you laugh when you're shopping for um, supplies during like for food at the beginning of an adventure race and you look at the the checkout counter and you're like, oh my God, what is this all that we have? This is awful. Um, but it is eating things that are uh, easily palatable. A variety too is the other big piece, right? So for me, I'm, you know, a five, six woman. I'm, um, I plan on a hundred calories an hour all the time. That is my kind of go-to. You've it actually should, dialed that in. You've dialed into a calorie number per hour. Like, you know, what I you have, do. I have, and I have by trial and error, because honestly that number is pretty low. Like a hundred yeah. is not very yeah. much, but yeah. I also I'm, know. I'm six one and one and one eighty on a good day. I would 100 yeah. calories an hour would destroy me. Yeah. Right. So, and I, and it's, I need to eat every single bit of what that is, but what it also, it doesn't end up doing. I should, you know, I used to do like 150, 200, but then I would end up with so much extra all the time. So now I'm like, okay, a hundred, but I'm going to eat every single bite and I won't have carried anything extra and I can get by on that. That's a hundred, that's a hundred in packaged food. That doesn't count. Um, that doesn't count calories, liquid calories that might be in a bottle. And that doesn't count like major supplements at transition areas. That's literally like we're planning a 12 hour set. I'm going to grab 1200 calories to be done with it. It's a starting point. Right. And I think everybody's when you're a brand new racer and you're like looking for like, I don't even know where to start. That was always my starting point. A common mistake too, that newer racers make is that they do the math on calories and they say, okay, these five cliff bars will give me a thousand calories. Ugh. Uh, ex- thank you. Thank you. And, and yeah, I, I, I rolled I saw, my eyes. You can't yeah, see yeah. me, but I rolled my eyes. Yeah. And, when, and when I, when I, when I do this podcast, I feel as if I, I should send a letter of apology to Cliff Bars because every time I mention Cliff Bars, <laughs> people roll their eyes because it becomes the go-to food during a race, which quickly becomes the no-go to no food go because food. you can't put yeah. that in there. And so for the newer racer, the idea that it's, it's not, it's more than a math problem. It has to be oh, yeah. food that you want to eat, food that you enjoy. What, Tastes terrible on day one is delicious in day three. I, I remember we were we were in Scotland and and my teammate had packed fresh carrots into his bag. Oh, it, fresh dreamy. carrots. And dreamy. it was it was the greatest thing in the world. It was like it was Not like, many calories, like the, but dreamy still. Exactly. Well it felt, it felt like you were brushing <laughs> your teeth during the race. Yeah. So totally. obviously you learned that through trial and error. Right. And, Absolutely. And, and doing that while you're training. And I think that is something that like people forget as well, right. Is that it's like, this is all opportunity, but you've got to have long enough days where you might have that appetite suppression happen, or you might have, you know, different things. Um, and I would say that like, I laugh because I'm like, I think as an administrator, you sort of just become like a, a garbage can for food a lot of times. Cause you're just like, whatever, I'm just going to eat. I don't care what it is. I'm just trying to get things in my body um, because it becomes so important. And it, and that joke always goes around that like, what's your favorite thing to eat? It's like whatever somebody else has, you know, it's like that whole, that whole deal. Right. And just alternating between like salty and sweet um, and not trying to do science foods. Right. Like I say, scientifically created, I mean like uh, superfoods that, you know, like potato chips, not things that are like not cliff bars and power power bars and gels. You know, I'm talking about the stuff that like we shouldn't be consuming as actual food ever. <laughs> I, have a, I have a friend of mine um, who's an avid listener. He's never done an adventure race, but he gets a kick out of the, the podcast and the topics and the people. And he always comments to me that when we get to the section on nutrition, mm-hmm. that we're never talking about fruits, vegetables, fiber, protein, bananas. We're talking about Kit Kats, we had Mountain Dew, Mary Chandler. Mountain Dew should send Mary Chandler a check because totally. the way that she talked about Mountain Dew during the race, stuff that would otherwise kill you if you consume regularly. And for those listeners out there, if you're drinking Mountain Dew every single day and you're not oh racing, God. you may want to reconsider that a little bit may as a life choice. Life choice definitely. Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. those tiny Coke cans 
Whew, those are the bomb. And yeah. sure, I mean, all kinds of it's wherever you can fire in the cal- the calories, right? Like I, I love that's like one of the best best parts of it all. <laughs> Have you ever done the stumble across the 3 a.m. open store? Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I with like 20 other racers at the same time. Like it's the most amazing thing. I great memory from God, I think it was the Equinox Traverse. I don't even remember what it was at this point, but it was a, a multi-day. It, it was at least a overnight. I don't think it was 24. I think it was more than that. But we were in this gas station in Pennsylvania and we were all like just sitting on the floor in the back of the gas station, like eating one, a floor you would never sit on in your entire life ever, unless you were doing what we were doing and eating whatever possible thing we could find out of whatever, you know, under whatever hot light it was rolling under, whatever foil it had been packaged in. And we all, we, I just, it was just one of those surreal situations where you're like, this is what only happened an adventure race (laughs) and it's glorious. I'm so excited. Thank God. It just saved my whole race because I had two pieces of pizza and a hot dog. We were at the uh, Rootstock Racing's 36 hour two river adventure race this past Memorial Day weekend. Mm -hmm. And we were going through a town, a wonderful town. They're having their coal festival and the town was packed and the, the local supermarket, the gas station, deli supermarket place was closing at nine o'clock. It was eight 55. Nice. We just bought the rest of their food. Like, give us all your pizza. And you know something? We'll take those jalapeno poppers. Like, they have to go home with us. And the food goes in you, and it's the best thing that ever happens in the world. Absolutely. You kind of just, like, almost rely on it to a point that at some point, that's going to happen. Right? right? And the worst part is if you get somewhere and it's not open, it's, that's horrible. But um, I definitely have world. been running through grocery stores in the middle of the night, you know, in full bike <laughs> kit. And, and them actually not being surprised to see you because they've been seeing other racers all day doing the same thing. Right? right? Like, like, it's always sort of like And it's like we're part. Martians. It's like we step yeah. off a spaceship. Like, who are you people? Totally. I love um, it. I love you know, it. You know, it's so funny because uh, on the on the dark zone, guests will talk about terrible food for 35 minutes to an hour. And we never get to the training. We never get to the actual physical preparation we have to do. When you're getting ready for an adventure race, I'm going to I'm going to make an assumption here and walk me towards or away from it. Sure. Your outdoor experience, your 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 work related training, the, the, the base that you have probably carries you really strongly going into the longer races, right? You're, you kind of run at a high level naturally because of your active lifestyle. That being said, what do you do in terms of specific preparation to get ready for a big race? Do you do, will you go out three weeks for a big race and give yourself a 24 hour effort of running and hiking and cycling? Will you, will you practice your sleep deprivation? What's your sleep plan look like for a race? Like how do you, mm-hmm. how do you sort of sharpen the knife going into the race to get yourself ready? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, First of all, there's a lot of great coaching out there, you know, for this type of thing. Uh, I, you know, I, I have been coaching historically. I, I'm not right now. Just so my my day job is plenty enough work for me at this point. So I, I apologize for anybody who's reached out recently for looking for coaching because I'm not actively taking on clients. Um, but there's a lot of folks who do this type of work, you know, professionally. And if you're interested in that type of thing, I would reach out to those 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 folks. You know, um, Jen Sager, Travis Macy, those guys. Um, you know, Jen Seger was actually my coach during, um, sort of the height of when I was doing the most expedition racing that I was doing. And so her programming for multi-sport was, was fantastic. Right. And the idea basically was just have as many big days as you can, right. (laughs) Have as many big days as you can in a row, you know? Um, and so for working professionals, a lot of times that looks like big days on the weekends back to back, which I think is really important and mix up your modalities as much as you can. Um, and then, you know, get things in as much as you possibly can during the week. I think, you know, what is important is, you know, we do focus on the multi-sport aspect of it. So folks feel like everything's got to be a brick, right? Or it's like, okay, I need to go run, bike, run. Like I've got to do that, you know, on Saturday. And yes, and when you really get into the bigger races, you got to be comfortable in the saddle for 150 miles. 
right? And you're going to be 10, 12, 14 hours on a bicycle. You have to get used to that. If you're not doing that um, as part of your training, like if you're not having those prolonged, and all this is obviously like ratio based on the length race you're doing, right? Like if you're planning your first adventure race, your sprint, you're doing your like first six hour, first, you know, four to six hour race, you know, all this is like, you know, uh, can be pared down to that. Right. So don't worry about doing the one hour brick where you're 30 minutes on a bike and 30 minutes running, like make sure you have spent three hours on a bike. Right. Like you need to know what that feels like. And I think the most important thing is also training like you, um, training, like you play. So every workout that I did for years was with a adventure race pack, full, fully loaded pack. Right. Unless it was intent was around speed work or something like that. But for the most part, every single one of my big days was my normal full on normally packed adventure racing pack. Um, and it just was like, it was a part of what went out the door with me. And so I would say, you know, definitely that whole play, like you practice or practice, like you play piece is, is a big deal. Um, I also think there's a lot to be said and, and any of the athletes that have worked with me and, and folks who've raced around me know that, you know, the physical training, the mental and emotional training is as important as the physical training. And we don't ever think about the intentionality behind what you're going to do with your mindset during a training workout, right? We always just think about like, oh, my workout tonight is an hour intervals. Okay, great. I'm going to go do that. Wonderful. Awesome. That's good for your body. What is your intention? What is your intentional mental workout that's going to be a part of that, right? Because there are trial and error pieces that go with that as well on the mindset side of that, right? So, do a ton of mindset coaching, did a ton of mindset coaching, right? But this whole idea of like, um, you know, you need to know what you need to hear. You need to know what you need to be able to say to yourself. And you don't necessarily always know what that is unless you've practiced that and, and trained with that. And so, you know, a good example of like a mindset workout, right, is saying, okay, we're going to go, I'm going to go do these intervals and I'm going to be very intentional about what I'm thinking about, right? And I have to say this idea of um, write a script and stick to it, right? So when you're out there and you're in the, the dark place and you're struggling and you're, and you're having a really hard time, you need to know ahead of time what you're going to do so that you can then execute that in that dark space, right? You can't just all of a sudden get there and be like, oh, I don't, I'm, I know I'm, you know, I'm totally off my game and I feel like crap. I mean, this happens in every single race to every single person out there where you have that complete, like, I don't belong here. What am I doing? I should never have done this. I'm going to quit, you know, like that very, you know, terrible place, right? If you haven't trained what you're going to do when that happens, then you're not setting yourself up for success, right? So I really do think that there's a lot to be said for being intentional and thoughtful about how you plan the mental side of your workouts and trying and making, having and experimenting with things that'll work for you. Yeah, I appreciate the fact that you emphasize the mental and the emotional components as, part, as the physical component, because of, as we've seen in adventure racing, and we've seen other sports too, it's not just, we, we don't have an, uh, uh, we don't own this space specifically, but the strongest person physically is not always the most successful person when it comes to the race that that will carry you so far. But at the end of the day, your internal dialogue, the way you're talking to yourself, what you're saying to yourself, that's going to play a major role. I know for, for myself, what I has been very successful for, for me and for other, for other people also is the idea of, of practicing like you play. I will, if I need a really, really big effort of some sort, the idea of rolling out my front door and coming back 14, 15 hours later is sometimes challenging. I'll put some wacky thing together. Like I'll have, I'll be dropped off 150 miles away and, yeah. and no one, no one in my life will come and get me like right. figure it out, get yourself back. Or sure. you know, you want to do a challenge. Like I know one time for training, we were bored of running. So we were dropped off in New York city. And we ran from the, from, from the Bronx all the way down to wall street, right? A 13 mile run, things like that. But to your other point, we throw ourselves into these, these challenges that make it hard for us. Like go out and like work all day, Friday, 
come in from work, pack a bag, get on a bicycle or get on a trail and go right out after work yeah. and try to put together a 24 hour stay awake effort from your six mm-hmm. o'clock wake up on Friday morning to go to work or your four o'clock wake up through Saturday morning at 10 o'clock and see how that feels. Because to your point, you're going to be in a race where the stakes are a lot higher and you're a lot more raw, a lot more ragged. You're going sure. to have to you're going to have to work your way through that challenge. I think the biggest piece, too, and, and I think a lot of folks, especially if they're new to the sport, are like, man, there is no way I can do that. Right. Or there's no way I can train for 24 hours. Right. Like it comes back to that, that privilege piece. Right. When I was doing a ton of exhibition race, I was training 25 hours a week. Right. But I was in a position where I could do that. Right. Like I was, you know, how I was working and different things that allowed me to my situation. That is not what most people have available to them. So what they need to be doing and what they absolutely should focus on is the consistency, right? I would say I'd still rather you run 40 minutes a week, five times a day than have one big effort on the weekend, right? Like I think the consistency piece of it, because the consistency also helps with the grittiness of the mindset, right? And this is that like day after day after day. And the endurance piece of that is is huge, right? And the mental and emotional fatigue that comes with that. So I think even those like shorter, more consistent efforts, time over time over time, as opposed to like the singular big effort, if you're short on time, like the consistency still is, consistency is king for all of those things. That's a common theme that will guide. Uh, very, very popular wow. adventure racer. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if he's an adventure racer, but he's a, he's a nice he's climber. adventure everything. Adventure everything. everything. And one thing that Will Gadd talks about, um, he talks a lot about how you try to move every day. And yes, don't totally. say to yourself, oh, I only have 45 minutes. I only have an hour or 30 minutes. Get yourself going every single day. Because when you build that base over time, eventually you break through a plateau where you can go have a massive day. Like if you don't do anything Monday to Thursday and you think you're going to crush it Friday, Saturday, Sunday, well, good luck, right? You need yeah, to, exactly. over time, you need to build your, you need to build yourself into that as you, as you go forward, because you're, you're able to make the jump up to the more longer, more complex challenges, things like that. Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned Will Gadd because his partner, Sarah Hunikin, who is a incredibly accomplished alpinist, um, is, you know, one of my, have, I've had some incredible adventures with her, like all through uh, the Canadian Rockies. And she's just a phenomenal athlete and an amazing person. And they're, they're, amazing couple. And I think they're really fun, both of them to follow and very inspirational. Yeah. The thing about Will Gadd, that's, that's, that's great about him. And, and let's, let's work on getting him under the dark zone. Um, the thing with Will Gadd is that he, he does these massive efforts and he just appears to be having so much fun along the way. You know, there's a, a common New Zealand expression that my friend Kate uses, and it's, it's sometimes fun isn't fun. And, but at the end of the day, when we're racing, and even, even though we're suffering, once again, we have to put suffering in quotes because yeah. suffering is relative. Yeah. When yeah. we do these big challenges, it, it doesn't feel like fun, but it is fun. And that's what keeps bringing us back to it. Sure. I mean, I think that the type one, type two, type three fun pieces, all of that, right. It doesn't sound, you know, and the great initial like dirtbag diaries podcasts from forever ago, which uh, I'm going to put in talks- the show notes. Cause that was yeah, I listened right? to that ages ago. So, so <laughs> for the listeners, let's see if we get this right. Type one fun is fun when you're doing it. Yes. It sounds correctly. like fun. It, you, you totally like, Hey, we're going to go to a concert and drink beers and watch this right. show. Sounds right. like fun. It's this fun, is fun while you're doing it's it. It's going to be yeah. fun. Type yeah. two fun is not fun when you're doing it, but it's fun when you talk about having done it. And, and it's like, uh, doesn't necessarily, it sounds fun, but it doesn't end up necessarily being fun. Right. <laughs> like in right. the but, moment. Yeah, exactly. But when you're but afterwards, when you're by the fire and you're like, Oh my goodness, yeah. that was so hard. And here we go. Yeah. And then there's the magical mystical type three fun mm-hmm. and type three fun is when it is miserable 
from beginning to end. And when you talk about sound like it's going to be fun, right? Right. It's it's, it's post holing (laughs) at 10,000 feet, right? That's when they they say in a podcast, right? It's, it's covered in mosquitoes when you're in Maine, you know, and you're racing. Um, And so you're spot on that we have, and and I will link the Dirtbag Diaries podcast in the show notes, because I remember listening to that well over perhaps over 10 years ago that really encapsulated oh, that. that yeah God, and credit, to, credit to Fitz and his team for absolutely for creating a word that we're talking about a phrase you know 10 15 years down the road totally. I met so. you know, I met Fitz um when I was working at Rainier and it was it was hilarious because I was in the climbing I was handing out climbing permits for the mountain and he came in to get a grab a permit and I wasn't really looking up and I, I got his paperwork and I looked down and I read the name and I was like hey <laughs> I was like, I really appreciate you. Yep. <laughs> Fitz McCall, thank you for that. Dirtbag Diaries. And definitely a shout out to, to for the podcast listeners out there. Go find the Dirtbag Diaries. I was an early adopter of there. And I think Scars is an amazing episode. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the one the one with uh, with Greg Bleakney, who talks about riding his bicycle from Alaska to Patagonia and how it changed mm-hmm. his whole life. And he went from being a guy who sold software for Oracle. And he's now an advent- He's now in Columbia, um, right. running, running a, a film company, amazing, amazing stories. And, well, right. Kelly, and check, out, right. check out their, their film side too, duct tape, um, then beer, because yep. there's so many great videos. The road to Caracol is like one of my oh. like super favorites, so shame, you know, yeah. what, that, that he's, he's passed, but it just, yeah, I, that for me, when I need motivation and honestly, this is like one of my biggest mindset hacks, like, of you know, all time, like, how do I, you know, how do I operate when I am feeling crappy? when I'm feeling unmotivated, when I'm feeling depressed, when I'm like full on riding the sofa, one of the things that gets me back is watching short adventure-based videos, right? And it's funny to bring up Will because, you know, like his move, the Arcteryx, like short clip move, Mm -hmm. like that is one of those things, like an object in motion, you know, stays in motion, right? Like it'll get my mojo back and it gets my mindset back. And I would encourage anybody who like, um, when you're in that like aspirational phase, you're like, I'm the type of person who wants to do this, or I want to be the type of person. It's like, find a way to connect to that. And so for me, it's like, you know, those people in those videos and those adventures, like I definitely relate to, I'll watch old untamed episodes. I'll watch, you know, our episodes from the you know world championships in Australia. And it's like, even though I was even there and competing in the race, I still get motivated just by watching what's going on. Right. So I, I think, you know, for a lot of folks, it's like if you can find the thing and it may not be watching a video, it may be listening to a podcast. It may be talking to a friend about it. It might be looking at a picture, whatever it is, like latch onto that thing that like brings you back right? That gets you back off the couch, that gets your brain kind of fired up. And you're like, oh yeah, this is me. This is, this is what I believe in. Right. I appreciate the fact that someone with your Palmares and your success, what you do for a living, that you re- you were vulnerable enough to reveal the fact that your enthusiasm ebbs and flows also, that you go up and you go down and you don't necessarily, you know, as, as a person who's a, a racer and had that kind of success, your enthusiasm, it peaks and it lowers. You don't live in this high rate all the time. And you have those things that bring you back. Sure. I mean, that's reality, right? I think any one of us would, would hopefully admit, um, you know, that that does, it waxes and wanes, of course, right? Um, and you do need to have, you know, ways to, to manage that. Right now, my two most popular short videos to catch is Cody Townsend is trying to ski the 50 classic ski lines in oh, America. Wow. And great. And once again, Cody is the kind of guy who just is having fun out there. He, he, he trains hard. He prepares really good stuff. And then there's an, an Aussie named Bo Miles and mm. Bo Miles. Once again, he's, he's a, 
I, I, for, our, for our Australian listeners out there, God bless you. He's one of these Aussie guys that will walk 90 kilometers to get to work over two days to see what it feels like. And he'll do an abandoned rail line and just walk out his front door and come back three months later. So Jeez. definitely Cody and Bo are, are definitely two people to follow as you, as you look for those, cool. those life hacks to go there. With your, your, your personal life and the work that you've done there, you know, the nine years old living in a tent and then working <laughs> with Outward Bound and being in the outdoor industry and then doing the adventure racing. You referenced this before. If you could expand on this a little bit too, the idea of like a crossover to, to one's regular life. Like there are things that are learned in the, in the outdoors, in the adventure racing, in that space that then spill over into your day-to-day living when you have to move around people who don't necessarily do the same things as us. What would you identify as some of the spillover positive impacts that you have from your adventure racing to regular life? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at Our Bound, we refer to that as the less transference, right? The process that like what you've learned and the experience that you've gone through transfers into other aspects of your life. So there's, I can, I can identify a million different ways things transfer, you know, personally, I, you know, I've never really quite written the article or written the blog post or whatever it is uh, to articulate Basically, you know, one of my biggest transferable moments was learning how to not quit, you know, going back to sort of this race with Glenn, you know, and and Glenn will laugh because I tell the story all the time, but it's just like, like we had the opportunity to quit. We were like very much faced and like plain as day, like, do we quit or do we not quit? Right. And like coming to like real reckoning in real terms after being out for 80, 90 hours. And you're like, are we going to quit right now? Right. And we had to make this decision, Um, you know, and, and we didn't quit. Uh, and I did have like a trip. There's a, a, a trick that I tell people about too, that sort of helped me in that. Um, but it was like that moment where I learned how to not quit. Right. And that is transferable, right. To, to your daily life. And I think it's, um, you know, like, I think for me, some of the things that have transferred specifically are around endurance and grit, right. Sustained effort, sustained energy, sustained interest. Um, I, I have an incredible level of confidence in the outdoors. And a lot of that, obviously, it's it's hard to figure out where that is from, like my professional work versus racing. But I do think that racing um, encompasses so much more of that for me because there's less guardrails, right? Like in our bound course, there's a lot of guardrails. We got a lot of safety pieces in place. We always know where we are, <laughs> mostly, you know. Type, but like adventure racing, we're we're out of our skis quite a bit more, right? Mostly because of the level of fatigue that you're enduring, you know, because you get to a point where it's like, hey, not only am I need to keep myself safe, but I need to keep myself safe after I've only slept for five hours in three days, right? Like that's a very very different level of like risk management. Um, so the confidence that I've gleaned and the confidence that I know that like pretty much any situation in the outdoors, I'm going to be able to manage because most likely I'm going to probably have slept and probably be fed and all those pieces, um, you know, super, super transferable. And also just like teammates and friendships. I think that's a big piece, right? Like I, I say you have friends, you have family and you have teammates because it's like, those are three different sort of categories because teammates become so much closer. Mm-hmm. in a different way, even from your really close friends. And obviously there's like, you know, transference between like your friends and your teammates, but like those relationships that you have through that shared challenge, through that shared adversity, you know, those are relationships that um, can just show up for you in a different way, period. Right? Yeah. A thousand percent true. You, you hear that time and time again, that when, and, and I, I don't think it's, once again, we don't have the corner on this, right? It's, it's people yeah. who, who are public, they're in public safety services together. They're in the military together. They're, they're they sure. work in up, they work in high risk operating rooms together, right? They take they care go of, on an hour bound course together. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> they, 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 they build that, that level of connection to each other that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily see. That doesn't come from sitting around a couch, watching something on TV together. No, it like, sure doesn't. It doesn't come from going to an all-inclusive resort in Mexico together. 
Right. 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 I mean, there's shared experience for sure, but shared adversity is a different, is a different animal, is a different yeah. beast. Yeah, that, that so when you volun- voluntarily join with a group of people to decide and intentionally pursue adversity together, the bonds that come as a result of that are are massive, right? I mean, this is exactly what I do professionally, right? So I work for uh, the North Carolina Hour Bound School. And one of the programs that's under my sort of supervision is our Hour Bound Professional Program, which takes adult intact teams into the wilderness to have a shared experience, right? Because they are either trying to fix a problem or they're trying to build a culture or whatever that is. But the whole idea is to go out and have intentional shared adversity prior to having uh, involuntary shared adversity, right? Because you need to know how you're going to respect, re- react and respond and what that looks like for each other. And I think that for us as individuals when we're adventure racing is part of it as well, right? Is that it's like going out and experimenting with challenge so that I can like know how I'm going to react, how I can respond when I have challenge that is is uh, been thrust upon me, right? And again, that comes back and speaks to this idea of privilege, right? Where I get to go experiment with it as opposed to just living it. Um, but I think it is, you know, very true. Very true. So in your in your adventure racing experience, as well as you work with Outward Bound and the fact that you, you you work on building shared adversity, what blows teams apart? Teams are going to be blown apart, period, right? It's not that there's a what, it's just when. I mean, that is the normal cycle of, you know, group dynamics, right? This whole forming, forming, norming, storming, right? Like you have to be blown apart. I think for a good team, you have to go through that storm. You have to go through that um, screaming at each other, walking away, frustrated, throwing things, whatever, whatever causes that to happen. I think it's, it's less about like identifying what makes that happen as like, what are you going to do about it when it does happen and understand that like, it's totally normal and to be expected that it happens. And then you cannot achieve high performance without going through that storm as our bound instructors, we facilitate that storm. Like it hasn't happened yet on a course. We make it happen. Ooh, trade secret, surprise, surprise. We might take their maps from them so that they have to deal with it and they don't know where they went and they accuse each other of losing them, whatever it is, right? So it's like going through that storm should be something that teams look for, right? And and want to encompass, unless you're like so highly performing and you've, you've already gone through a storm at some point. And I'm, I'll tell you that I'm sure that Seagate and all those guys go through their storm and then that they perform because they've already gone through that. So I don't think it's what, I think it's when. Let me let me let me dig a bit more into that because I, I think this is really interesting. So I had an experience once during an adventure race where a teammate and I got into a full-blown, this is a very, very good friend of mine, got into a full-blown on the water, expletive-filled screaming match over a shared frustration that we had in, we were in separate boats. And we got into it in a big way. And to the point where our other two teammates did like the mom and dad are fighting and they kind of put their heads down and they weren't oh, talking. Been there. Yeah. 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 It was actually more like dad and dad are fighting and they put their heads yeah. down. Yep. And so what you're saying to me now is that if I thought of that event as a failure on my part, because we let that happen, you're saying instead, no, 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 that's part of the growth process. And as a result, if you deal better with the aftermath, you'll be a better team after hundred percent, right? That you, that is a, a natural form of group development, right? And team development is that you go through that storm. And then what you've learned as a result of the storm is what's going to open the gateway to high performance right now that the storm might end a relationship. For sure, right? Like that might mean the end. But if you can leverage, I mean, that's challenge, right? You just went through a challenge, you leverage challenge for change, right? And you change from that, you know, and you actually are able to adapt and you'll be better off as a result of having had that happen. So the advice then for the for the racer, not even the newer racer, for the racer is, is that if, if they're having a difficult time with the teammate, if there's some sort of an emotional 
negative interaction, they may want to reframe that interaction as a possible, as a, either a growth experience or as something that could end that relationship. Yeah, I think you absolutely do reframe that. I think you look at that and say, you know, did that happen? And it made sense that that happened and that was natural and let's learn from it. And if both parties and everybody's like, yeah, let's learn from that and let's perform, let's reframe. We can all do that and move on. Awesome. Could that be the end? Sure. I mean, that you know, in reality, if if no one can be in the position where you're like, yeah, you know what, that was bridged too far and I'm not into this anymore. I'm out. Like, sure. then that's what that's going to be too. But it, I do it, think that there's, especially when you talk about somebody who's like a really good friend or it's a team that you race with often, or, you know, it's like really having that sense of like, whoa, okay, what the hell just happened? How do we how do we learn from that experience? Right. And I wouldn't say that like, you should be like expletive, expletive, expletive. Okay. How can we learn from this? Right. Like you got to have a cooling off period right. in that. Right. You know, and take the time, walk away, catch a breath, regroup, all that sort of stuff, you know? And then it does a lot of times come back to just being like, yeah, I'm sorry for what I said when I was hungry, you know? I mean, right. And then also sharing the, the, the respective perspectives because sure. when we, cause following that, 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 that on water meltdown, when we talked about it, after a cooling off period when the race ended and we were good friends the entire time. We like, we never stopped talking to each other. We didn't realize what the other person was going through at that time that if we had known and therefore you learn to give yourself the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's coming back to the life lesson idea. It's working really, really hard to understand somebody else's behavior in the context of what their possible perspective is. They're oh acting gosh, this way yes. for a reason. Absolutely. I think so often a lot of the work that we do, whether it's, you know, we do a lot of leadership development professionally, right? And so a lot of times it is, or it is as important to understand somebody else's leadership style as it is to understand your own, right? It is as important for you to understand somebody else's values as it is to understand your own, right? Because if we, we got to know our own selves, we've got to have clarity on ourselves, but we've got to understand where somebody else is coming from too, right? In that sense of like, oh, I know why that's going on with my teammate right now, because I know that person really well. And I know we've raced together and I understand what's going on with that person. It changes my perspective always around. Obviously it builds patience, it builds compassion, it builds empathy, like all those pieces. Right. And it's hard to remember that stuff when you're four days in and your feet are, you know, red bloody messes and you haven't slept and you haven't eaten and all the things, you know, it's hard to do that. And so I think understanding what tips and tricks you need to, to ground yourself in that. I think that's why you see a lot of people who have like stuff written on their arms or they have like stuff written on their top tubes on their bikes. Um, you know, the trick I always have people have heard me talk about before is writing a letter to yourself ahead of time of the race. When you're in like a really good spot, when you feel awesome about yourself, you had a great training episode, whatever it is, when you're in your like strongest sense of self, your strong self has to prepare for your future weekend state, right? So write yourself a letter that when you're in that moment of like, I'm quitting, I'm done, this is over, I'm outclassed, I'm in the wrong place, this was a stupid decision. You pull out that letter and you read those words that you said to yourself about yourself. And you remember that that's you too. Right. So that whole idea of your strong self preparing, preparing for your future in a weekend state, I think is one of the like most important lessons for me that's come out of it, that I've learned through adventure racing, the necessity to do that. We had a, a teammate one time, wonderful, wonderful, strong teammate. Her daughter would give her a letter before the race and yep. it was her break open in case of fire letter. And, exactly right. And so it was funny. It was, it was like, during, it was a running joke during the race. I, I need the letter. Give me the letter. Like we'd be totally. asking her for the letter. Yeah. We need the letter. And it was, and it, it, it was a good, it was a good moment of levity in a race. We'd be like, Oh, it's, it's time. This is too hard time for a letter. And she'd be like, no, you don't get the letter yet. You haven't earned it yet. And then eventually totally. in the race, oh, the, yeah. and, the, and eventually she opened the letter up and the letter was the, exactly what she needed at that time. It's amazing. It's amazing. Have somebody else write one, have write one for yourself, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but I do find there's a lot of people that are using that tool uh, yep. at this point and it's whatever it is, right? Like whatever it is that it's like really just connecting to your best self. 
I could imagine too, like I, I started racing, my kids were a little bit on the older side, but I could imagine people having like letters from their children waiting for them. I would totally. just be a, a bawling mess. I would just be, what, what happened to Brian? Oh, he read, he read the letter. That would be the answer. Yeah. I also would say that like, I think there's a lot of value in it being in your own words, because I think it's really easy under stress to discount someone else's opinion and to be like, oh, they're just saying that because they love me or blah, blah, blah. Right. I think like we are our best teachers often. Uh, and so that there's no way that you can say like, oh, I didn't mean that. It's like, well, you was you. <laughs> it wasn't. So it's not somebody else's opinion. This is your opinion of yourself. Right. And your own words. So I just I would say like, you know, there's kind of different ways to look at that and that, you know, I tend to go on the like your own self kind of piece, more self-reliant. Maybe I, that's like a self-reliance piece that, that, I, that comes for me, I think. Imagine a dynamic, too, when you're three, four days into a race and you haven't slept in three, four days and you're reading a letter you wrote yourself and you don't believe that you wrote it for yourself. Like you're telling yourself. Who wrote this? I only didn't write this. It's in your own handwriting. It's like they, they switch yeah, letters totally. on me. Anything about event racing I didn't ask you you want to talk about? Mm. It's been a while for you, right? I, it has been a while. It's been Untamed was my last uh, exhibition race, the one we did together. Was that 2018? No, was it? Was it 19? Was it 19? No, 19. I was in Scotland. It was 18. Yeah, I guess it was 18. Oh, man. That has been a long time then. Yeah. That can't be right. I guess it is. You know, the funny part about Untamed, and it's it's interesting, you know, I <laughs> I was working in the field for Hourbound at the time of that race, and I worked a 22-day course that ended three days before that course started. In North Carolina, I came off, finished course, packed, got in the car in Western North Carolina and drove to Vermont and raced. I had not been on my bike in like four or five months. And it was probably one of the best races I've, I've ever had. Who, who are um, your teammates? Who'd you race with? Uh, it was Glenn and Travis. And oh, good guys. Um, good guys. Travis, I, you see, how do you say Travis's yeah. last name? Don't make me do it. Travis Email? S. <laughs> Travis S. Travis S. And Glenn Gibson. Yeah. And who was the... Glenn who was, Gibson and, uh, Mike Cheney. Great team. Great guys. Yeah. Awesome guys. Awesome guys. Um, and it, that was a, a fantastic, that was one of you know the best showings that I've had. And that was obviously an incredible race. Um, but I've gotten to race with some incredible people. And so I would say if there's, there's nothing you haven't asked, but I would say that if you're listening to this and you're just thinking about it and you're like super curious, like go be curious and go try, right. And go do a short race. Like don't, it's so, it's easy to be super overwhelmed by a long race. Don't even think about that. I didn't start that. I didn't start racing that way. I was doing six hours, 12 hours. And, you know, as that envelope pushes, which I'm sure many of your guests have said, it's like, yeah, now a 24 hours seems like a short race to me. Right. You know, in the beginning though, it was like, Oh my God, 24, it's crazy. Insane. No way. Right. Um, but now it's like, Oh yeah, that, that is a short race. And, and most of the folks that are sort of in the, in that my peer group in that way, are like, yeah, 24 hours is a short race, but don't start there. Start with a six hour race, start with an eight hour race, start with a triathlon, whatever it is, like the multi-sport transitions, like those are super, super important. Um, but really it's just, you know, go for it. I think that's the biggest, you know, kind of advice is just like, man, you, you can do it. It's it is accessible and you can do it and you should just go for it. Thank you, Sarah, for joining us today. I feel like after listening to this episode that I now need to prepare for her class's final exam. How to address a challenge, the best way to view adversity, and how to prepare to venture race will all be on the test. We're grateful for her time. On a personal note, I hope that she again jumps into adventure racing. It'd be great to have her back out there. If you've enjoyed this episode, please pay visit to your podcast streaming platform of choice and leave us a review. That is the best way to spread the word. Also, always feel free to reach out to me at 
brian at ardarkzone.com. Your feedback and guest suggestions are always welcome. Again, please support Katie Farrington and her family, and thank you to our sponsors at Tansy Navigation for their support. And thank you listeners for joining us at the Dark Zone. Have fun out there.